0: You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. Good morning, church. My name is Paola Page. (laughs) My family and I have been here for around 12 years. I have the privilege to volunteer with Little Village and also as a Spanish interpreter in the Spanish ministry. Today I'm going to have the honor to read from John 14:1 through 6. I'm going to read in Spanish. You follow in English, please. No se turbe su corazón. Ustedes creen en Dios, crean también en mí. En mi casa hay muchos aposentos. Si así no fuera, ya les hubiera dicho. Así que voy a preparar lugar para ustedes. Y si me voy y les preparo lugar, vendré otra vez y los llevaré conmigo para que donde yo esté también esté en ustedes y ustedes saben a donde voy y saben el camino Tomás le dijo Señor, no sabemos a donde vas ¿Cómo podemos saber el camino? Jesús le dijo Yo soy el camino y la verdad y la vida Nadie viene al Padre sino por mí Esta es la palabra de Dios This is the word of God
1: Thanks be to God Yeah. I like the speed of Spanish. I feel like I was born to speak that fast, but uh, I just do it in English. So um, it was 1992 and it was one of the more watched court cases in American history. It was in full swing in 92. Marines, Lance Corporal Harold Dawson and Private First Class Loudon Downey were accused of the murder of Private William Santiago and were facing murder child charges as well as a court martial. Some of you with me, some of you not, it's gonna be fine. As the investigation and trial progressed, it became clear though, that although Dawson and Downey were guilty, they were acting upon an order given to them uh, by a commanding officer, an order that they would not have been able to not obey. Now, in one of the more dramatic moments, by the way, you can watch this on YouTube. Uh, In one of the more dramatic moments of the case, the JAG lawyer given to the defendants, Daniel Caffey, actually put Colonel Nathan Jessup on the stand. And what came after that was nothing short of epic. Caffey just went right at him. Did you order the code red? And the judge said, you don't have to answer that, but Jessup not going to be put off by this Harvard Pretty mouthed lawyer said, I'll answer the question and then fires back to him. You want answers? Cavie said, I think I'm entitled to them. And he said, You want answers. And Cavie said, I want the truth to which Jessup from his bowels said, You can't handle the truth. Bum, ba, right? It's just kind of epic. And, and then from there, are you with me yet? You know, that's a movie. Uh, there seemed to be some confusion. Like, I don't remember this. I was in high school in 92, but I, I don't know. That wasn't my thing. No, it's a movie. You're fine. I know what you're watching this afternoon. Now, After you can't handle the truth, Jessup gives a long explanation for why our boy Caffey can't handle it. Here's his. Let me just quote him. Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have have to watch. Like I'm wanting to kind of take on his voice. Anybody else that's having to him right now? Don't do it. Just read the quote. Okay. I have a greater responsibility than you could possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. That Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't, wanna, you don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself, to this is a ridiculous intro, all right? Uh, to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the very blanket of the freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a, not a church word, what you think you're entitled to, right? Bum, bum, bum. Now, I want to argue today that they're missing each other because I think they're talking about facts under the banner of truth, and facts and truth aren't the same thing, and so let me unpack that. Um, Facts are things that we can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear. Truth is what sits underneath those things and orients us to reality. So facts, they, they can uh, point to um, a specific time, place, or action, but truth is actually behind all of those facts and is more saying this is what actually the universe is all about. So truth and facts, this is an argument about facts under the banner of him not being able to handle the, the truth. They don't, they don't understand each other Right out of the gate. And, and this is actually a common thing among human beings. In fact, uh, Jesus tries to help Pilate in a very, uh, another way court case that was a very well-known court case. Jesus had been uh, arrested. Uh, he is back behind closed doors with Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus, but he, but he lacks the courage to live a life of conviction. And there's, there's this dialogue between Jesus and Pilate where this comes to the forefront. Again, here's what, what it says in John 18, just about four chapters uh, ahead of where our primary text is today. Here's what Pilate says to Jesus. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate's retort. What is truth? And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Do you see them missing each other? Like Pilate's like, you're a king? And Jesus like, well, yeah, in fact, I, I am. But I, I'm a king who's come to testify to the truth. Well, what's truth? So, so Pilate's jammed up on facts, and the truth is standing right in front of him. And, and Jesus is like, yeah, I, I have come to testify to the truth. I'm, I've come to testify to, to myself, and, and that, that those who believe the truth will follow me. They, they know me. They hear my voice. And, and he gets so disoriented, he's just like, well, I mean, what's, what's truth? Which is a question that lays across all of human history. Um, right before Jesus is arrested, right actually before that, his, his disciples are getting anxious at Jesus' talk about death, about being arrested. He's like trying to tell them, hey, this is coming, and it's disorienting them. So he, he moves towards them to comfort them, and that's what's going on in our primary passage today. And so I'll put it back on the screen. Hopefully you're looking at it there in, on your device or, or in an actual Bible. But here's what it I'm not saying that what's on your, I'm sorry. That's just my Gen X-ness, right? You're like, no, it's not your phone. It's a Bible, right? So you're fine. John 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am. Now, I love Thomas here because Thomas gives us an example of what not to do. Thomas doesn't understand and he doesn't get it. And so instead of going, "Uh uh-huh, he actually says something. You ever found yourself like somebody saying something, you feel like I don't wanna look dumb, feel like I should know this, so let me just go, uh uh-huh. Well, Thomas doesn't do that. Thomas actually goes, actually, we have no idea what you're talking about. I just to appreciate that kind of honesty around spiritual. I mean, he's standing there with the the Big Twelve, man. I mean, he's he's standing there with the disciples with Jesus. Heard everything that nobody else is saying anything. Like, yeah, Peter, you know, Peter, like, yeah, I know the way. Thomas is like, we we literally have no idea what you're talking about. And then Jesus answers him, and this is our this is our sentence for the day. Jesus said to him, "I am the way and the truth." And the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. This is a very unpolitically correct sentence. This is not interested in building bridges. This is not interested in hearing your backstory. This is Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. And and the gravitational pull of this sentence is that idea of Jesus is the truth. It's not something that he has. He's not here to give you some facts. He's here because he is the truth and the things that you and I most want, right? We want the way. We want purpose. We want uh, life. We want flourishing are inseparably linked to Jesus as ultimate reality. Not Jesus as a prophet or Jesus as a teacher or Jesus as parables. No, he's like, I am the truth. I am ultimate reality behind everything that is. There I am. And there will be no way, there will be no life outside of a life built on the foundation of me being the truth. Not a truth among many, the truth. I mean, this is, like, he ain't playing. This ain't seeker-sensitive. Let's talk about that. When the Bible talks about Jesus, it talks about him like this all the time. So this is John 1, starting in verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the what? Word. Now, is that, is that word, word, capitalized or lowercase? It's capitalized. Oh, public school. Let's get it. Right. <laughs> in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what John is doing here in the Greek language is playing a bit of a game. Um, The Greek philosophers, they, they had this concept of the logos, Like ultimate reality. And here's how they would have defined logos and the Greeks would have in the first century. The logos was universal divine reason, imminent in nature, yet transcending all oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and humanity. An eternal and unchanging truth present from the time of creation available to all or every individual that seeks it. So John, writing about the coming of Jesus, says that, oh yeah, that, that thing that you guys always talk about, that thing you're trying to find, that thing that, that you guys are, are always getting together and philosophizing about, that's Jesus. So, so if you look at what he's doing here, to, to the Greeks of his day, he's saying, Jesus is the universal divine reason. Jesus is imminent in nature, yet transcends all oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and in humanity. That Jesus is eternal. He is the unchanging truth present from the time of creation available to every individual who seeks it. Then Paul in Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. isn't some philosopher or mere teacher or miracle worker. He defines reality. That's what's happening in these passages. He hasn't come with tablets, right, to kind of hand you some tablets. He hasn't given you, he didn't show up with the 15 new commandments. He hasn't, he has come because he is reality. He's not a good teacher. He's ultimate reality. He's not just a miracle worker. He is the truth, not a truth, the truth. He sets boundaries for human flourishing and then he invites us in. He makes a way for all of our enemies to be vanquished. Look at me, especially the enemy that's inside of us. Thank you. He is transcendent. He orders the facts of life. He isn't the facts of life. He's the reality that sets the facts. This means, Here, this makes my contact. This means that truth is external and fixed. It is not internal and fluid. I'm going to say it again. This means truth is external and it's fixed. It's not internal and fluid. Now, if you've been trying to live in 2023 and you hear somebody else talk about the world and it feels to you like they took crazy pills or maybe you're the one that's taking crazy pills and i'm and i'm talking across the spectrum today look i know some of you love jesus and been following a long time and i know some of you you're skeptical of all this maybe you're even frustrated that you're here so like if you're outside of the faith and you look at christians you're like how can they believe that? that's so backwards that's so or, or if you're a christian you're like how could they possibly like that's crazy what's happened look at me what's happened is your view of reality is so different that you'll define and find your own facts. And then it's hard to even have a conversation anymore. And the big mess of our day is that, and I'll talk more about this next week, is that we have moved from truth is outside of me. Something that, that is, it's fixed, it's set. It's not in here. And instead, we, we've, we've, done the, the, we've headed in the wrong direction. Did you know that um, 91% of Americans agree with the statement? Let, let me read it. I want to be right on. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 91% of Americans go, that's the way. Now, if you were here, if you were here when we did the Unearthed series, we talked about the primary way that identity is formed in the modern era. So historically, so here, church, or not just church, think human history. Truth is outside of me. It's fixed, and I orient my life around that truth that's fixed. It's not always changing. It's not always moving. I don't have to guess. It's right there for me to look at. Now, the game that we're in that is a catastrophe is let's start by looking in. So I look in, and here's what I'm looking for when I look inside. Desire. I'm looking for desire, like like big ones. So I, I go on down, take the journey inward, looking around for my desires. I mean, I'm probably 15, 17 when this happened, so testosterone's flooded the system. You tracking with me? What, what desire am I gonna find down there? 15, 16-year-old girl, what desire she's gonna find? And then an over-sexualized culture? Well, gosh, I might find my sexual preference. I might find a compulsion, a sexual compulsion down there. Now, okay, gosh, that's a, that's a pretty strong desire. Let me go, okay, kabah! There's my identity. Or it doesn't have to be sexuality. It can be also, it can be control. It, it can be, I mean, it can be all sorts of things. Man, if you've been successful in business, you're I'm a successful businessman. I'm an athlete. I'm a man, you just got, you find it. It's down there, you find it's in you. This is what I'll oh, pay him. And now, what I've got to do, now that I've fixed my identity, it's not based on anything outside of me, it's based on what I found in, right? Now that I've found it, here's what I got to find. I got to find some people who are like that, they support that. They're not even going to support it, they're going to celebrate it. Now, let me find my people. And then when I find my people, now I got my crew and this is what we are. This is our identity. And dadgummit, life's still not working, man. I'm still anxious. I'm still depressed. I'm still angry. It's still not working. So I, I need some kind of, let me look up. So you look in, you look around. Now you look up. I need some kind of spirituality to lay on the top of this. And so now you, you kind of start picking different spiritual practices, like an ecclesiological buffet. And sometimes it's, it's like, like, like the fitness thing right now. It's like, is, is every woman in the world starting a fitness Instagram or something? I mean, it's just like, let's be fit. Let's eat clean. Let's detox. Let's It's like a gospel that this will save you. But I'm telling you, this is identity stuff. Now, let me find the people that agree with me. And here's the point. Since this is my identity, to disagree with any of this makes you a bigot. You hate me if you disagree with this. Well, that's not true. It might just be that we've got thousands of years of human history that says this ends bad. It actually could be that we love you. I don't tell my kids no because I hate them. I don't pull them in and go, we don't do that here because I want to crush them. That's nonsense. I do it because I love them more than I love my own bones. And so there's times I got to go, hey, no. And, and if you choose yes, the ramifications are going to be significant because I love you so much, I can't let you do that. But, but now... And listen, this happens with Jesus all the time. It's just not, you know, it's not just other spiritual practices. Be, people conform Jesus to their own desires all the time. My Jesus wouldn't. You're like, oh, you, you got your own? I thought there was just Jesus. And, and so now, like, think of how exhausting this is. Think about immediately set you at conflict with the entire world. To disagree with me is to attack my personhood. And, and now there, there can be no disagreement. In fact, there better be celebration. Think of the weight it puts on, like God help our teenagers. Like we're asking them to create their own moral universes. That's a heck of a lot of pressure. I mean, I, I watch my kids just try normal schoolwork and they can get overwhelmed. Create your own moral universe and then hold it all together. No think of how lonely that is think about anxiety ridden that experience is and then on top of that here's what's wild Um, desires change all the time in fact it's not even now as a near 50 year old man i can find myself competing desires at the same time anybody else like i really want this but i really want that and i'm not getting both Right, so, so how do I form my identity when my desires are twisted? I don't even know which desire is the primary desire. They're often at odds with each other, and they're constantly changing. How am I supposed to build a life? I'm going to burn down the whole world. No, this is who I am. Well, that's not who you are. How dare you, sir? And you see how it just breeds conflict. It breeds strife. It breeds violence on the human soul when truth is internal and constantly changing. It's madness, and I think we're all, we all have a front row seat to the madness, but we're all steeping in it so consistently that we can't hardly see how we're doing some of the same stuff. I think specifically the next generation, although I'm not dogging you, I'm so glad you're here, I love you, you're a part of this church, I'm preaching to you in some ways today. So, I, I want to lay this before you. God wants you to know truth. He hasn't hidden it. He he hasn't, um, he hasn't put it in places where you can't find it. He didn't put it on the top shelf. He didn't, no, God wants you to know the truth. He wants you to know and see ultimate reality for what it is so that the facts of your life might lead to purpose and flourishing so that the facts of your life wouldn't lead to chaos, heartbreak, loneliness, despair, and deep brokenness. No, God comes... Into the world, He sends Christ, the truth, co-eternal with the Father to step into this mess. He comes towards us so that we would see the truth, know the truth, rejoice in the truth, and be healed. And so the question then is, and I'm going to nerd out for a while and you're just going to have to endure it. It won't last long. The primary way that you and I get to see, know, and understand the truth is in the revelation of God and his purposes and plans in the scriptures. So he, let, me, let me just, I'm gonna nerd out and we're just gonna go for a little ride. I'm gonna try to make it fun because I think it's fun. I'll be quick. Now, this is what we teach. your kids. If your kids are elementary and they're over there, they're gonna sing a little song about the Bible is God's true word. It's from God. It's about God. The Bible is God's true word. So I don't know how you grew up. It's, this isn't the roadmap to life. Look at me. You ain't in here. I mean, there's maps in the back, but this book isn't about you. This book is about God. This is about God revealing to us the truth of who he is so that we are a people of the book. This is a miraculous book. Look at me. And it's not a fact book. It's a truth book. See, I think some of you get bored with the Bible because you think it's a fact book. And I think some of the reasons you call yourself Christian, you're such a jerk, is because it's a fact book. And not a truth book. We're going to geek out. So 40 different authors across 1,500 years, three continents, one story. Did you know that? Like 66 books, you know, it's not that like there's one big story happening in the Bible. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation tells the same story. It's the story of God redeeming and saving people, his creation from the brokenness of sin and death. It's the story of the Bible. It starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. You know that there's six different genres in the scriptures. I I say six. Some people would say five. Some people would say eight. But there's law, books of the law. Then there are books of history. Then there's poetry. There's what's called wisdom literature. There's letters. There's gospel. There are all these different genres. So a lot of times when people are attacking the Bible to try to undermine its authority, what they do is they like take something out of genre and then kind of make a big deal out of it. They're like, the sun doesn't rise. And the... They'll take like a poet, a, a psalm, and kind of try to maliciously malign it. I'm like, hey, there wasn't a raven tap, tap, tapping on the glass either. It's a poem, dum-dum. Right? I mean, are you tracking with me? It's like, it's poetry. It's a book of history. It's like knowing the genre matters. Knowing the historical setting matters. To so try to reread back on Scripture, 2023 ideologies will break your brain. But this is a miraculous book. 40 different authors, 1,500 years, three different continents, four different languages, all telling one story. They didn't meet. There is no editor. The, the lead editor of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. Right? That, that's so how did they write it? Well, they wrote it with pens and ink. They, they wrote it with their own hands and their own minds. Men wrote the Bible. If anybody ever says that, that's absolutely true. Men wrote the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, knowing they were writing the very words of God. But, but let's, let's talk a little bit more. Um, I, I think, like, I, I will at times really get frustrated by the sheer volume of propaganda that's trying to take from you violently take from you how miraculous this book is, how powerful it could be for you. And so let's, let's talk about can the Bible be reliable or is the Bible reliable? This is where I'm nerding out. Okay, you ready? Here we go. That one the nerd part. This is. Okay. Um, let me make, this is fact about truth. The Bible today, in your lap right now, is nearly identical to the original manuscripts that we have. Let me, let me color in the, the picture. In 1947, in, in a cave in Qumran, we found what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know how deeply you dug into that, but there were over 5,000 manuscripts in that cave that dated, follow me, we're nerding now, they dated 1,000 years earlier than anything else we had at that moment right? So we've got our Bible in our hand. We had ancient manuscripts and then boom, into a cave, 5,000 manuscripts. We open them up. Oh my gosh, these are a thousand years older than anything else we have. So here's what they did. They took the scroll of Isaiah from that manuscript, thousands of years older than anything else we had. And they took that Bible in your lap and they laid them side by side and they are 99.5% identical. Now, You're like, well, if it's the word of God, what about that 0.5%? You're my kind of people. That's a great question. Here's the answer to it the 5%, the 0.5% was sentence structure and spelling errors. These are called errors of sight, but when compared to the hundreds of other copies we have, they're easy to spot. They're easy to spot. I want you to think about this. The earliest possible scroll we have of Isaiah, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Is identical to the one in that Bible in your lap. That's miraculous. Because didn't, didn't the patriarchs take it and twist it to oppress all of us? Didn't they change the wording? Didn't somebody get involved so they could overpower us with their authority? Didn't they? Right? is that, that the game? No, I think it's the game. Or here's one of my favorites. I want to highlight this. This is like, if that was nerdom, this is big time. Like this is varsity nerdom. Um, it, let's say you're getting a degree, you're in college, and you're like a liberal arts major, or you know, you're a history major, and, and, and you're, you're after it. You're getting your degree. And so they're going to they're gonna go, hey, you need to read Plato's Republic. And so you grab Plato's Republic. Let's talk a little bit about Plato's Republic. I'm going to nerd out. Let's go. So Plato's Republic, universally accepted as correct and authoritative. It was written around 380 BC. You with me? 380 BC. Now, the earliest copies we have of Plato's Republic are dated around 900 A.D. So I want, you to, I want you to follow me here. Plato writes the Republic like 380 B.C. 1,300 years go by and we don't have a copy. And then we discover the manuscript. And you know how many copies we found? Seven. We got seven copies, 1,300 years from when it's supposed to be written. And when we finally have a manuscript and yet you get a liberal arts degree... Hey, Plato wrote this. This is what's happened. We want you to think about Western civilization this way. We want you to build your law practices around this. We want you to consider the world through these lenses. No, like patriarchy. No, this is oppressive. None of that. It's just like, this is a good read. Or maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you're more like, you're you're history guy. You want to kind of know history of Rome, the development of the Western Civ. So they're like, great, let's read Caesar's Gallic Wars. And so Caesar's Gallic Wars were written around 100 to 44 B.C., Right, the earliest copies we have are dated a thousand years after he wrote it, and there was only ten copies. Right, so this is like these are things that hey, this is going to shape how Western civilization thinks and works. Read them, know them, apply them. And yet, there are these massive gaps between when they were written and we actually found a manuscript. And, and then there's there's just no question, even though the number of manuscripts is tiny. Now, just because we're in church, let's do the New Testament. The New Testament was written between 50 and 100 A.D. We have more than 5,000 copies of the New Testament in manuscript form. All of them were written between 50 and 225 years of their original writing. That book in your lap is a miracle. And it's how God wanted to reveal himself as the truth as ultimate reality to you and to me. And and so maybe you're like, well, I mean, some of that. I mean, what about archaeology? And I'm so glad you asked because that's the next part of my notes. So archaeology confirms. So point one, right? The Bible in your nap has not been tampered with. It is like, almost identically like the original manuscripts. Number two, archaeology does nothing but reinforce the scriptures as being true and right. C.S. Lewis, uh, who called himself the most reluctant convert in all of London, did not want to become a Christian before. Dang it, God got him. Um, and, and he would say, the thing that always threw him off about the Bible is that he was a literature guy, and he's like, it just doesn't read like fables. It doesn't read like make-believe. He would bring up things like Jesus was like leaning on his left side. He said, Fable doesn't work that way. And and so archaeologists like continue to confirm the historicity of the scriptures. This is Nelson Gluick. He is a Jewish archaeologist. He is not a Christian. I'm trying to highlight Christians because we're skeptical in these days. And, and we think that if I quoted a Christian, of course they would say that. So I'm just gonna give you some non-believers here, right? Here's his quote it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. And then I love this. The book of Acts, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, nine islands without air, all of which have been identified through archaeology. Now, last point, and then it's my conclusion. The last, you've got the fact that the original manuscripts are what you have in your lap that hasn't been tampered with. You have the, the fact that archaeology confirms it. You have the sheer volume of manuscripts involved in this miraculous book. And then lastly, you have extra biblical historians that tell the same story that's in your Bible. Let me give you Josephus, a Jewish historian, not a follower of Jesus. And here's what he says. Jesus was a wise man who did surprising feats taught many, won over followers from among the Jews and the Greeks, was believed to to be the Messiah, was accused by the Jewish leaders, was condemned to be crucified by Pilate, and was considered to be resurrected. Well, man, gosh, that sounds just like the four Gospels. And then Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, also not a believer, says, Nero inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class called Christians. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of our procurator Pontius Pilate. God wanting you to know the truth has moved towards you in the person of Jesus and has revealed himself fully to you in the scriptures. So we're people of the book. Informed by it, shaped by it, submitting to God's revelation in and through it, living boldly by its decrees and its commands. Why? Because Jesus is the truth. The Bible itself must not ever become a textbook for evaluation, but rather the pathway to seeing Jesus as he really is, rather than the Jesus of our imagination So, so with this in view, what do we do? What are the mean? Okay, great. Okay. Jesus is the truth. The scriptures can be trusted. What do you want us to do? Here would be two things. Here would be the first thing. Uh, The first thing I would encourage you to do is it's going to sound crazy. is actually to read the Bible, read it, but, but be careful how you read it. See, I think some of us have been trying to read the Bible forever and it's like, ah, I just can't, I just can't really get into it. And I'm wondering if you're not reading it like a book of facts. Like, this is a a fascinating passage. John 5, 39 through 40. This is Jesus to the ruling religious leaders of his day. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Did you hear what he just said? You search the scriptures in vain. You read the book in vain because you think the book has life, but the book's pointing to me and you won't come to me. I'm the truth. They're pointing to me. But when the Bible becomes facts, to kind of conform or control my own world, well, now we're, we're doing that thing we talked about earlier where we formed our own identity, and now we're trying to make Jesus fit the thing that we're trying to identify as versus the Jesus of the Bible is a very confronting figure. He's just not always going to sit down with a warm cup of tea and go, you're right, you're right. It ain't going to always go like that. He'll be confronting at times because he loves you. So one of the things that, like, what would it look like for you to find five, ten minutes this week and just read slowly through the Gospel of John, asking the Holy Spirit to encourage your heart by the beauty of Jesus that you see there? What might that look like for you? What might change in your life if you said, you know what, I'm going to, help me, Holy Spirit, see the beauty of Jesus, and you just slowly read through the, the book of John. I'm not kicking you off in Leviticus. You'll get there. Jesus is all over Leviticus. One story. It's pointing to him. But but here I think is the bigger one. If if one of the things we need to do with this is um, man like read the Bible because Jesus is showing us who He is in the Bible and all His fullness and all His complexity and all the kind of I like that I don't like thatness of who He is. If He is truth, then then guys, there has to be in here today some some repentance. There has to be in here uh, today some consecration. Like if Jesus is ultimate reality, if he stands behind everything as the one who is, who defines ultimate reality, and you and I have things in us where we're like, well, I mean, kinda, this means that Jesus cannot be some add-on for you. This means that it can't be, um, I go to church on Sunday, and, and I'll try to do a group or a class, but no, this is, I am the truth. You can't understand reality without knowing me. I mean, look, this is, I'll just flow through it. He's the almighty one, the alpha and the omega, our advocate, the author, the perfecter of our faith. He is authority. He's the bread of life, the beloved son of God. He is the bridegroom. He is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is our deliverer. He is faithful and true. He is the good shepherd and the great high priest. He is head of the church. He is God's holy servant. He is the I am, the Emmanuel, the indescribable gift, the judge, the king of kings, the lamb of God, the light of the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord of all, the mediator, the Messiah, the mighty one, the one who sets us free. He's our hope. He's our peace. He's the prophet. He's our redeemer. He's our risen Lord. He's the rock. He's the sacrifice for our sins. He's the savior, the son of man, the son of the most high. He's the supreme creator over all. He's the resurrection and the life. Guys, he's the door. He's the way. He's the word. He's the true vine. He's the victorious one. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. And He is, look at me, the truth. And I'm wondering. Here, look at me. I love you and I'm stuck. I'm really hopeful today that the facts of your life are causing you some pain. I do, man. I'm just hoping, like, I hope you're tired enough. Good Lord, I hope you're tired enough. Man, this is a messed up age, and we're in it. And 2 Corinthians 4 says that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of those who are perishing. And I'm wondering how many in this room, like there's some other truth that's your ultimate reality and you've organized all your facts around that truth and it's not working. So the call is repentance and consecration. So consecration means a setting apart of. And I'm wondering if that's a step that many of us haven't taken. Like we, we've repented, but we haven't said, no, my, my whole life, I'm consecrating my life. My life is about Jesus. He's not an add-on. He's not a Sunday morning thing. He's not the one that helps me with my language or helps me stop drinking or the one that helps me with my addiction. But rather, he, he's the truth. I'm going to orient my whole life around this truth. And I've got this lifelong journey of learning more and more about him in the scriptures and in his community to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next in a long journey home. Where I've got to repent a lot and I've got to re-consecrate myself. So here's what I want to do, and I don't want it to be easy. I'm going to go ahead and ask our prayer team to just come up here to the front. They're going to come and they're just going to stand up here and they're going to position themselves to receive you. And here's what I want to do. If as we've been preaching and singing and talking, it, it, it's it, like it's, you've woken up to the fact that either, man, you, you've got some repenting to do, man, you've got a whole other truth you're trying to live out of and the facts of your life are, are crushing you and, and you need to say, no more, Lord, and hand that over to the Lord and, and consecrate you. I'm giving my life to you, not, not just this one issue in my life because that's how you, man, you're coming with issues. You're like, oh, my marriage is, bro, help me, Lord. Man, he's bigger than your marriage? He's trying to orient you around ultimate truth. Now, the hope for your marriage, I think, can be found in that. So what would it look like today to repent? So here's what I'm going to give us about three or four minutes of silence here in a moment. And I'm just going to invite you to come. And and I want it it to be hard and I want it to be awkward. And I want you to think, oh, my gosh, everyone's going to see me. Yeah, we are. We're all just going to watch you. Now, the good news is is we're probably all going to be celebrating with you. And then let me let me end with this story. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, it, it's found in I think Luke eight. It's found in the Synoptic Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke. And it's this woman who uh, has an issue of blood, right? And that made her unclean. And there's this massive crowd around you. I mean, there, it's a massive crowd around. If you watch The Chosen, you just saw some of this. And this woman, with great faith, fights through to just. She just like grab a tassel. She just wanted to touch the hem of his garment. And for the first time, so we have a different worldview. Their worldview was if it's unclean and it touches what's clean, it defiles it. But what happened and what's available to you is when in all her uncleanliness, she touched what was clean, she was made clean. Her brokenness didn't transfer to Jesus. Jesus' wholeness transferred to her. And that's what's available. And men, especially to you. Don't think, I don't know, you're going to have a lot harder time than women will. Because you're awesome, bro. You're doing well. You got this. You'll be all right. The invitation. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There'll be no purpose There'll be no flourishing outside of building on this rock. And so I'm going to pray for us. And, and it's open. man. you want to come on down here can get up and come down anytime you want. And if nobody moves, that's in the Lord's hands, not mine. Right? And then, if you stay in your seat, though, I would love for you to just be praying for yourself. Ask the Lord to show you. Do I do I have do I, do I have truth issues? Do do I am I really? Are, am, is my whole life really oriented around you? Are there areas where I'm just refused to give it to you because I think I'd be embarrassed, or I don't want anybody to know this, or because I just don't want to do what you're asking me to do? I'm going to pray for us. And I'm just three or four minutes. Just going to give you three or four minutes. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. And then, well, I'll I'll take it from there. So, Father. Ask for your mercy on these men and women. Gosh, I don't know what you're up to in here, but but I want you to orient our hearts around you being ultimate reality. Forgive us. We've man, we we have there are other things that are ultimate to us. There, there are compulsions that are ultimate, there are fears that are like some of us we're more afraid than we are hopeful. We are more angry than we are at peace. We are like like we're a mess. I thank you that you welcome us back to this table. I thank you for an opportunity to pray. Thank you for an opportunity to be prayed for. Just ask, King Jesus, that you would work among us this morning. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.